certain disaster to the presumptuous mortal who laid hands on the sacred gem, and to all of his house and name who received it after him. And the Brahmins caused the prophecy to be written over the gates of the shrine in letters of gold. One age followed another, and still generation after generation, the successors of the three Brahmins watched their priceless moonstone night and day. One age followed another, until the first years of the 18th Christian century saw the reign of Aurangzeb, emperor of the Mughals. At his command, havoc and rapine were let loose once more among the temples of the worship of Brahma. The shrine of the four-handed god was polluted by the slaughter of sacred animals. The images of the deities were broken in pieces, and the moonstone was seized by an officer of rank in the army of Aurangzeb. Powerless to recover their lost treasure by open force, the three guardian priests followed and watched it in disguise. The generations succeeded each other. The warrior who had committed the sacrilege perished miserably. The moonstone passed, carrying its curse with it from one lawless Mohammedan hand to another. And still, through all chances and changes, the successors of the three guardian priests kept their watch, waiting the day when the will of Vishnu the Preserver should restore to them their sacred gem. Time rolled on from the first to the last years of the 18th Christian century. The diamond fell into the possession of Tipu, Sultan of Seringapatam, who caused it to be placed as an ornament in the handle of a dagger and who commanded it to be kept among the choicest treasures of his armory. Even then, in the palace of the sultan himself, the three guardian priests still kept their watch in secret. There were three officers of Tipu's household, strangers to the rest, who had won their master's confidence by conforming or appearing to conform to the Muslim faith. And to those three men, report pointed as the three priests in disguise. So, as told in our camp, ran the fanciful story of the Moonstone. It made no serious impression on any of us, except my cousin, whose love of the marvellous induced him to believe it. On the night before the assault on Seringapatam, he was absurdly angry with me, and with others, for treating the whole thing as a fable. A foolish wrangle followed, and Herncastle's unlucky temper got the better of him. He declared, in his boastful way, that we should see the diamond on his finger if the English army took Seringapatam. The sally was saluted by a roar of laughter, and there, as we all thought that night, the thing ended. Let me now take you on to the day of the assault. My cousin and I were separated at the outset. I never saw him when we forded the river, when we planted the English flag in the first breach, when we crossed the ditch beyond, and fighting every inch of our way entered the town. It was only at dusk, when the place was ours, and after General Baird himself had found the dead body of Tipu under a heap of the slain, that Herncastle and I met. We were each attached to a party sent out by the General's orders to prevent the plunder and confusion which followed our conquest. The camp followers committed deplorable excesses, and, worse still, the soldiers found their way by a guarded door into the treasury of the palace and loaded themselves with gold and jewels. It was in the court outside the treasury that my cousin and I met to enforce the laws of discipline on our own soldiers. 
Ferncastle's fiery temper had been, as I could plainly see, exasperated to a kind of frenzy by the terrible slaughter through which we had passed. He was very unfit, in my opinion, to perform the duty that had been entrusted to him. There was riot and confusion enough in the treasury, but no violence that I saw. The men, if I may use such an expression, disgraced themselves good-humouredly. All sorts of rough jests and catchwords were banded about among them, and the story of the diamond turned up again unexpectedly in the form of a mischievous joke. Who's got the moonstone was the rallying cry which perpetually caused the plundering, as soon as it was stopped in one place, to break out in another. While I was still vainly trying to establish order, I heard a frightful yelling on the other side of the courtyard and at once ran towards the cries, in dread of finding some new outbreak of the pillage in that direction. I got to an open door and saw the bodies of...